Um, we're talking about confessing Christ this morning, and that was a confession. We're going to look at some confessions from, uh, from our text. This text, by the way, in Matthew 16, it's verses 13 through 20, is the epicenter of the Gospel of Matthew. So Matthew's a great big book. It was biting off more than I had thought I would bite off in terms of how long it's taken me to get halfway through it, but, uh, but it's all worth taking some time to look at. And we especially want to look at a big chunk in the middle that is talking about confessing Christ. And it ties with our holiday season because uh, Advent is Christ has come and it's, it's time to confess Christ. Our culture is begging us. It's almost, uh, it's almost like provoking us to, uh, to say Jesus is Lord or to not say Jesus is Lord because the culture is going to put the squeeze on and what's inside will come out and believers confess Christ. Um, If I was to come back through the room and just say, hey, let's take a survey of everyone's testimony and to talk through your conversion experience, I would get a variety of stories. Some were raised in Christian homes. Some never would, would claim they never didn't know Christ because they were always learning and being taught of Christ and the God's word and the Bible. They had Christian friends. Um, some would say polar opposite, never had Christian friends, never came from a Christian home, never heard the Bible until I heard the Bible. And some would say, yeah, I always heard the Bible, knew the Bible, could recite the Bible, but then I had a moment where I really believed the Bible by conviction. A lot of different stories would come out in different ways as to your experience. Some would remember a distinct moment where you were converted, kind of a Damascus Road conversions. I was, I was blind and then I now see. And some would say it was more of a process where I just came to know that I was a Christian by conviction. One thing's sure, though, with the variety of stories on the outside, in terms of your experience, all of your storyline on the inside would be precisely the same. God, at a certain point, took out your hard, stony heart and gave you a new, soft heart. He gave you a heart that believes. Believers believe in the Lord by conviction. Convictions are born by being born again. And that's what happens. And I have to just challenge you this morning on the front end of our message. I'm going to read the text, but a true believer will confess Jesus as Lord. It just is a cause and effect dynamic. You say, I'm a private person, I'm an introvert, I don't do that. Well, when the squeeze comes on, you're going to say one thing or another. Um, when the squeeze of the culture or the pressure of accountability, what do you believe or do you not believe? When that line is drawn, a believer will say, yes, I believe Jesus is Lord. Introvert, extrovert, it's, it's going to come out. What's in there will come out. An unbeliever will stay private or stay casual or will find a way out of that confession. That's What I want you to see this morning is that Peter's example of confessing Jesus as God, Lord, and as Messiah, his confession is an example to what all of us should be about. He's the example and the model of what all of us should be as confessors of Christ. His confession is our confession. Listen as I read verses 13 to 20. 
Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. It's a strong text, chock full with a lot there. Is it a terrifying notion to think that you might be put on the spot by the culture to either profess Christ or not, to confess him with the knowledge that there would be reprisal, there would be kickback from that? What if Christ put you on the spot? What if Jesus said, who do you say that I am? What are you going to say? What are you going to say? Some will say, well, it's dangerous to confess Christ, and in their delusion would say, well, my faith is private to me. It's my own business. Doesn't matter. It's at my discretion as to what I will say or not say. That laissez-faire attitude is a mind and heart set adrift, and it's in jeopardy spiritually. I want to call us, I want this text to call us back to the Truth that we need to be ready to confess. One preacher put it, we need to be ready to preach, pray, or die in a minute. We'd be ready to go. The disciples were on their last year walking tour with Jesus around Galilee, different parts. We've talked about Tyre and Sidon all the way down to the Decapolis. We, we find them now up in the, um, the kind of Caesarea Philippi, which is 25 miles north of uh, Sea of Galilee at the foot of Mount Hermon, a very Romanized culture. The squeeze is on them. Jesus is beginning to talk about his soon time to be crucified down in Jerusalem. He's going to die, rise, and ascend and go away. So he'll be gone. So when the squeeze comes on them, they dare not choke. We're in the same condition now with a culture that's closing in. We learned last week that we have the mind of Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, we have the ability, like the disciples, to think thoughts like Jesus thought. We see, can see life through his eyes because the Holy Spirit is in us. We do have that reality and that assurance. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's connecting the mind of Christ, this new mind, to how we think, turning into words that are a confession to how we speak, thinking and speaking where he's going. Paul explained all of this dynamic in 2 Corinthians 4. You can take a deeper, closer look later. But again, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. For God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has turned the lights on. We see Jesus through faith. We got to say something about it. He goes on to say, after he talks about being persecuted for the faith, in 2 Corinthians 4.13, later in the chapter he says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. 
We've got that same thing going on in our hearts. That's what he's saying. He says, we also believe and so we also speak. We believe and we speak. The prophets, they believed and they spoke. We're just like them. That's what he's saying. What he describes that he spoke is verses 14 through 18. You can look later. It's confessing Christ willingly, boldly, spontaneously. It flows out of a converted heart. A private faith is no faith at all. Just a private faith, a faith that does not have works, a faith that doesn't have fruit, a faith that has no voice, a faith that is unwilling to sing, a faith that is unwilling to worship, a faith that's unwilling to converse about Christ spontaneously, boldly, clearly, without apology, is not real faith. It's not saving faith. It's what this text is about. The 12 were confronted by Christ in this. They're confession needed to come because the stakes were being raised. And it's in a unique spot. This is, again, a Romanized area where under uh, this Herod, Philip, who was one of the Tetrarchs, um, he ruled and remember his wife had been taken from him by Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas um, was down in the Galilean region. A little bit due north is Herod Philippi. You have four different Herods who were put there by Caesar. They're all family members and they're feuding and fighting. Antipas beheads John the Baptist. There's tension there. There's violence there. There's possible persecution to Christians. There's probable persecution. And Jesus says in this Caesar worship land, where they're saying Caesar is Lord, Caesar is God. This is where they're in the middle of Caesar's worship center, this area, saying, Who do you say that I am? Warren Wiersbe said the town was named after Augustus Caesar and Herod Philip, that's Caesarea Philippi, the region, and contained a marble temple dedicated to Augustus, a place dedicated to the glory of Rome. In that arena, who do you say that I am? It's the question of questions. It's the epicenter of Matthew. It's the epicenter of your own soul. The state of your soul is to be analyzed in the light of this text. Sometimes it's not if you'd be willing to confess, but where you would be willing to confess or to whom you'd be willing to confess that Jesus is Lord. That is the real test of whether you are real or not. When I was 17, I became a believer. I was transformed from the inside out. I began to share my faith and talk openly about it. And it was a dramatic conversion. So the pastor put me up in front of the congregation, wanted me to share my testimony. I didn't even blink. I'm an extrovert, but it was like, okay, yeah, sure. But I wasn't a public speaker by any means. And I, behind the mic, just was saying that the Lord is the Lord of my life now, and I'm changed, and just said whatever came to mind. I don't really remember what I said. What I do remember is making eye contact with all the friends that I had been partying with all up to that point and was breaking ties with them with what I was saying about Jesus. I remember that very clearly and distinctly. One friend that I grew up in grade school with from first grade through seventh grade had been reintroduced to me through the youth group. My senior year, he follows me out in the parking lot and he says, what you just said was very, very strong and it was a very clear and serious commitment that you just made. He was not yet a believer. I said, yeah, you're right. (laughs) And he was right. 
I talked to a pastor friend of mine, just in terms of Christian preaching and confession. He's a pastor who was connected to a would-be celebrity convert. He had been potentially, he was being invited to go to a Joel Osteen-sponsored event with this celebrity convert, and should he preach there in that arena? A lot of people will say, well, if you don't control the message, I'll preach it anywhere. But I told him and counseled him, if you take that responsibility and preach in that arena, you better preach in such a way that they don't invite you back. Because you don't want to be misunderstood or associated with a false teacher. Paul said in Mars Hill on Areopagus with all the idols and all that philosophical um, dynamic, he said the times of ignorance of God are overlooked, but now... God is overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's the message. That's confessing Christ in an unsafe way. And I, I have kind of made the outline in terms of unsafe and safe confessions. Um, if you'll follow, it's three kinds of confessions. The first are safe confessions. The first are safe confessions. Three confessions are found here. There's safe ones. These are not the good ones, but they're called safe ones. Listen as I... Read again, verse 13, now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The people here are the Jews in Caesarea Philippi, the Jews who are being brainwashed to say Caesar is Lord for safety. They weren't ready to do that, but what they did say, and the apostles knew what they said, they did say, verse 14, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. These are safe confessions. Um, a safe confession would be to say, yeah, Jesus is, he's like John the Baptist, or he is John the Baptist. I mean, that, that's who he is. It's a curious thing to say, because they would have seen John the Baptist with Jesus at his baptism. John the baptizer baptized Jesus. They would have known that John the Baptist was um, taken by Herod Antipas, incarcerated, put in the dungeon, Transjordan, we talked about that um, weeks and weeks ago. Um, John confronting Herod Antipas for um, having an adulterous affair with, uh, with, the, with Philip's wife. Um, that Herod, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a bold confrontation that John was giving that put him in jail that ultimately got him beheaded. That's what was happening. So to align yourself with John the Baptist might not be safe, but that's what they were doing. They're just saying Jesus is John. I'm not ready to completely tap out of the whole um, pressure dynamic here. I will confess something. I will align myself with Jesus, but I'm going to call Jesus a messenger. He's John the Baptist. He's maybe the spirit of John the Baptist has now gone on to Jesus. That's what Herod Antipas believed. He believed that literally John, the, that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. That's Matthew 14 too. He, it says it clearly. He believes he's resurrected. It'd be like reincarnation, believing, oh, here's John the Baptist reincarnated. He's here again. There was a... Caesar fixation, but the Jews at this point were not fixated on Caesar. They weren't into government will save you theology. They were still, they were still steering clear of that. People will worship the idealism of government. Caesar can save or Jesus can be the new Caesar and that will redeem me. That will save my culture. 
They're not doing that. The Jews at this point are saying, no, Jesus is taking up the mantle of John the Baptist. He's not Messiah. He's the messenger. And so a messenger message is less threatening. And you just say, um, like, I'm just the messenger. And so I'm not the scandal. Aligning with John the Baptist didn't usually get you thrown in jail at this point, but it was a little bit dangerous. John the Baptist was preaching repentance. He was preaching a hard message. He wasn't doing miracles. But at this point, they weren't calling Jesus um, a heretic. They were just saying Jesus is the messenger. Um, Jews will do this even today. Jews will say, look, Jesus is not, he's a messenger. Think about it. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. He's not God, but he is from God and he's the messenger. That's so weird to me because Jesus calls himself God, calls himself the I am, calls himself Yahweh, calls himself the Messiah. And the Jews are saying, look, I don't want to be offensive to you. We'll have Jesus, but Jesus is just a messenger. He's just like John the Baptist, or they probably believed, some believed he actually was John the Baptist brought back. That's a safe confession. It's not the safest, but it's safe. Secondly, here's a safer confession. Let's move one, one degree out safer, and let's just call Jesus Elijah. And all the Jews loved Elijah. There was a lot of popularity with that prophet. He was the most romanticized, beloved prophet. He was the one who took on the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. He's the one that scared away, you know, wicked King Ahab. He was the one who prayed and was synchronized with God's will and knew how to pray in a way that would turn the faucets off and the water stopped and the rain stopped. And so the drought came and three and a half years later, he prayed and the waterworks came again and drenched the land. This is a hero worship Jesus. So the first Jesus is the messenger Jesus. Oh, it's John the Baptist. Now this is the romanticized Jesus. Oh, he's the hero. And in Christmas time, everybody has an opinion of Jesus. These are safer opinions of Jesus. This is the hero Jesus. John the Baptist couldn't be the forerunner of Christ because he was beheaded by Antipas. He's canceled out. So Jesus has to be the true fulfillment of Elijah. Elijah who, remember, he didn't die when he handed the, um, his leadership prophet, leadership mantle off to Elisha. The chariots of fire came, 2 Kings 2.11. Chariots of fire and horses of fire separated. The two of them and Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven. So Elijah then has just come back down and he's Jesus. Um, they both do miracles. Elijah did miracles, Jesus does miracles. So there is no problem here whatsoever. In Matthew 17, Elijah is going to be actually witnessed at the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, Elijah is a popular foundational prophet. And so these Jews are associating that foundation with Jesus, but it's still a safe opinion to go in this way. Remember later, the Jews would jeer and mock Jesus as he's down on the cross going, Eloi, Eloi, Labat, Sabatani, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's crying out in his desperate time of need, apex desperation, and they say, oh, is he calling to Elijah to come save him? I mean, people love Elijah. D.M. Hebert said it this way. He said, from Malachi 4, 5, there was Jewish interest that was stimulated by that, and they were connecting his reappearance um, with the coming Messiah. He's the grandest and most romantic character Israel ever produced. 
and traditions grew up around him and exaggerated opinions developed, ascribing superhuman traits to him. Jesus is our hero. Listen, saying Jesus is a great messenger, a great teacher, or he's your hero is not a saving message. It's not a saving confession. That's not true and saving faith. The safest path is this final path where they said, He's like Jeremiah, verse 14, or one of the prophets. This is being blasé about Jesus. This is the Jesus that is malleable like clay. We'll make him like Jeremiah. Um, he, you know, we're connecting the big picture here. I'm not ready to completely disconnect from the Old Testament and Jesus. He's like Jeremiah. He's Jeremiah. He just is, he warns people like Jeremiah did. And Jeremiah was the most rejected prophet, by the way. No, no converts. And so Jesus is like that to me. He's, he's kind of benign. He gives warnings. I can take him or leave him. I can cut and paste. He's my cut and paste Jesus. I can cut and paste with the Bible, take this story, leave that story out. He's malleable. That's the Jesus that is the safest Jesus to ascribe to. And that's, and that's what our culture has said of Jesus. That's why Jesus shows up in the magazines at, at the grocery store around Christmas time and Easter. It's the benign, sort of romanticized Jesus. It's like he's the, he's the messenger, he's the hero, and he's whoever I want him to be. Guess what? Culture is ultimately going to reject that Jesus too because liberalism is saying um, Jesus is hate speech. The Bible is hate speech. And the old adage, you know, the Burger King-like thing, you can have it your way. It used to be that was our culture. You could have Jesus if you want him. As soon as it's going to be, you can't even have that Jesus. So we may as well speak up about the true Jesus. We may as well start making unsafe confessions because these safe confessions are damnable. They don't make you safe. The safe confession keeps you in spiritual jeopardy in view of eternity. postmodern Jesus to say he's Jeremiah or just one of the prophets. It's whatever. Let's look at unsafe confession. So we've seen a safe confession. How about an unsafe confession? This is Peter's confession. Verse 15, Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? You is plural here. He's talking to all 12. 11 are going to believe. One's not. That's Judas Iscariot. But all 12 are there. And all 12, I imagine, are nodding as Peter speaks as a spokesperson on behalf of the 12. 11 believe, one doesn't believe. 11 are all affirming the right content here. But one is affirming the right content, Judas, without any spiritual conviction at all to back it up. You can say the right thing and be dead and on your way to hell. That's a big point just to know in the back of your mind as you look at this. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, verse 16, replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Straightforward, without hesitation, confesses Christ. The son of the living God, you know what this means? This means he's saying you are God and you are alive. You are of the same essence You're made of the same substance as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. You are the living God. Let's back up. You're the Christ, meaning you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the one who's set apart by the Holy Spirit as our king. You are our king. Like 
David had been set apart by Samuel, Samuel pouring out of his horn all the anointing oil onto David. That is recaptured as Jesus is baptized and the Spirit of God is descending on him like a dove. He is anointed. He is the King of kings. He's the eternal Son of God. He's the one who is our Savior. It's the second member of the Trinity. He's alive. It's affirmed by God the Father and the witness of the Spirit. John 1, he was with God and was God in the beginning. All things were created by him and for him. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, he's the exact representation of, our, of God's nature. He's the imprint of God. We see God as we look into the face of Christ. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is why it is unimaginable that a Jew could say, well, we'll just take him as the messenger. Or, well, we'll romanticize him as the hero. Well, we'll normalize him and just cut and paste and take and leave what he says. No, he's either all Savior or not a Savior at all. He's either all God or not God at all. It's a dangerous message because it's exclusive. You are the Christ. It's dangerous to be exclusive in your testimony. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. The kingdom of God is shut out to everyone who does not take Christ and Christ alone as Savior. It's dangerous because it's expected of all of us. It was expected of all of the 12, and it's expected of all of us to make this confession. Who do you, plural, say that I am? Who are you saying that Jesus is? That's the word from Jesus, even to us. To say the Bible is true, to say this is real and authoritative and powerful. This is exclusively the holy book of God where he speaks to us on earth. That's born out of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's an unsafe confession to make, but you have to make that unsafe confession to make anyone safe for eternity. Safe confessions keep people unsafe. Unsafe confessions, radical confessions, truth confessions, convictional confessions are what opens up blind eyes to see Jesus. Jesus is the spokesperson, I mean, Peter is the spokesperson. He's speaking out of the conviction that's born by the Holy Spirit. And this is affirmed to us by Christ's confession. We've had three confessions so far, safe confessions, an unsafe confession by Peter, which is a truth confession. And now we're going to look at Christ's confession. What does Christ confess back to Peter? And by way of Peter, to all believers, this is the question. What does Christ confess to be true about you? What does Christ confess to be true about the state of your soul? Verse 17, this is what you once said of you. It's what Jesus said of Peter. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Blessed are you because... This didn't come from you. He uses Simon Barjona, which is really just means son of John. It could mean son of Jonah, but really it's more translated clearly as son of John. He's using his human name to humanize Peter and say, this didn't come from your flesh and bones. This didn't come from flesh and blood. This was revealed to you from heaven. Saving faith and convictional confession comes from God, not from man. What Jesus says about Peter is what 
should be said about every true believer, is said by about every true believer. Roman Catholic Church has taken Jesus' words over Peter and propped him up to be the first pope, to be the progenitor of this um, kind of false idea that you have a single leader who is over the church, who is opening and shutting the doors for people to come in and out of the kingdom. Careful look at Jesus' confession dismantles this. What does he say to be true about every believer? This should be applied to every believer. How does Christ's confession about Peter apply to every believer? That's the question I want to answer with our remaining minutes. Number one, Jesus references Peter as being blessed and as Simon Barjona. He's blessed. Every believer who's born again, every true believer is blessed like Peter was blessed. We're a new creation. We're illumined by the Holy Spirit. We're made to see by the eyes of faith. We're given all the promises of God and their yes and amen. We're guaranteed interest in the kingdom. We're given bold access to the Father. By the intercessory work of Christ and the Holy Spirit, we have a relationship with the Lord. We're all blessed like Peter was. Spurgeon said, he said, Simon Barjona used his old name to bring the distinction between what he was by nature and what grace had made him to be. When you're saved, all the angels in heaven rejoice, Luke 15, 7. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons um, who need no repentance. In other words, self-righteous people. Luke 15, 10, just as I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God rejoices over you and confesses this over you from heaven. When you're saved, every regenerate believer is put in the Lamb's book of life. We're all called blessed. Matthew 5 with the Beatitudes where Jesus is saying, blessed is, blessed is, blessed is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are the meek and lowly. All those blesseds are our blessed. We are blessed. Number two, why this blessing isn't just Peter, but it's to us. Jesus makes clear Peter did not come up with this on his own, that by his flesh and blood, this had not been revealed to him, but by the, fa- but by the Father. Where did salvation originate? Where did your salvation originate? In the mind of God. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you. To be saved, designated you to believe, gave you the conviction and the new heart. Number three, Jesus affirms Peter's confession, not Peter. That's what he's confirming here. Look at this. This is one of the most controversial things in all of the New Testament, but I'm just going to use like a minute to explain it. Verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's the rock? That's the big question that's debated and banted around. Uh, Well, the language makes it very clear. You are Peter. Jesus in John 1.42 renamed um, Simon Peter. Aramaic is Cephas. You'll hear the name Cephas for Peter. That means rock in Aramaic. And then Peter means rock, Petros. It's a masculine use there that you're a rock. Peter, you are a rock. But what he says in this blessing this confession he says i tell you peter you are peter and on this rock the word rock there is petra 
So Petros is his name. You're a stone. You are a stone, Peter. But out of your mouth came a boulder-like Petra, a boulder-like confession. And the confession is, you are the Christ. Verse 16, the son of the living God. The whole church is built on that confession. The whole church is built on that Petra, that rock. That Petra is a foundation stone for the church, which is really Christ himself. Peter explains it in 1 Peter 2, verse 6. He says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The confession is, Jesus, your Messiah, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. You are the way to heaven. You're the living God. Verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So the foundation of the church is built, and we see it in the early church, and it's always built on preaching the gospel, preaching this confession. Peter at Pentecost will preach this confession. He will preach this truth that Christ is Lord. He's not preaching about himself. He's not preaching about a position. He's not saying he is the one who is to be looked to. It's always about Jesus. Ephesians 2.20, the church was built on the apostles and the prophets in the sense of the message. It's a message that we carry out. The church is always being built up by the message of the gospel, by this confession. Unsafe confessions is what God is using to build his church. You say, how do we build the church? We just speak the truth, just like Jesus is Lord, an exclusive truth. He's the only way. That's how people are saved. That's how the church is built. And it says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against. You know what that's a picture of? Hell there is the word sheol, which is the word for netherworld or death. It's the idea that when someone is saved, there is no gated death. There isn't eternal death for them, but the gates of hell are opened up. So death is opened. You cannot hold me. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Life goes on for eternity. We don't live just for here and now, we live for the life beyond. Death is not the end. The doomsday method message of our culture is death is the end. Death is the end, and it's not. When people say, look, if you do that, that is forever. No, it's temporal. It's temporal. Our forever is defined by eternity, not now in time and space. It takes the sting out of death. The gates of hell, the gates of death shall not hold us, shall not prevail. They are opened. Number four, this message is for us uh, because Jesus gives the keys to the kingdom of heaven to Peter to represent the function of the church. Everything Peter is entrusted here is carried out by the church. You can read that in the book of Acts. Now, it, it is specific in verse 19. Jesus says, I will give you, singular, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? Well, Jesus was, I mean, Peter was a key preacher at the beginning of the book of Acts. Acts 2, 14, Pentecost. Acts 3, 11 to 26. Acts 4, 11 to 12. Acts 4, 23. Acts 8, 20 and 23. He's preaching this confession and people are being saved. It is opening up doors for people to be saved. The Jews first, 3,000 were saved. Cornelius, the house of Cornelius, he's preaching the Gentiles are saved. 
Ananias and Sapphira, they're lying to the Holy Spirit. And Peter's that representative there and things are shut down in their lives. So there's some opening and shutting there. But this mantle of leadership is ultimately passed on as the apostles transition. You have Paul who takes center stage at Acts 13. He's the lead preacher now, not Peter. So this whole idea of popery kind of breaks down the... Um, the papal system breaks down because the apostles die out and then you have eldership that is established as the lead in the church. And what is the, the, one of the chief dynamics of eldership is working with a congregation in terms of church discipline. And that's what's found here. Whatever is bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There are adjudications that are being made all the time in terms of where people are spiritually. Are people rebelling in the church? Well, they need to be called to account. Are they, are they repenting within the church? They need to be restored. That's the binding and loosing. All of that's going to be discussed in Matthew 18. I'll leave it for there. But just to say the language here of binding and loosing is a perfect passive tense. It shall have been bound and shall have been loosed. All church discipline is, is really going after people, giving them the gospel, calling people to repent, rescue and going on rescue missions. And what God is doing in heaven, we're just recognizing here on earth. That's the language. Shall have been bound, shall have been loosed. We see it, oh, the Lord is opening that heart. Oh, the Lord seems to be um, exercising a judgment on that heart. It's the binding and loosing. We'll pick that up later. Where does this all lead us? Look at verse 20. It almost leads us to a A screeching stop where you go, this doesn't make any sense. Then, after he says all this, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Here he's asking for this bold confession, but he's seemingly shutting it down. What is he doing here? He's basically making a statement on the fact that you cannot pragmatically win people to Christ. It's called the messianic secret. We can't market people into the kingdom. Uh, the, the gospel witness is not a marketing strategy. There aren't enough programs, bells, whistles, lights, dog and pony shows, gimmicks that you can conjure up to try to bring about a conversion. Confession is born by the Holy Spirit, not flesh and blood, by the Holy Spirit, and it comes out and it's real. So don't go out and be pragmatic marketers for Jesus. That's what he's saying. Don't market me. It's born by the Holy Spirit. So what do we do? Well, we make unsafe confessions. Unsafe confessions. Say what's on your heart. An unsafe confession is the only thing potent enough to open a closed heart. Will you play it safe? Even during Christmas time, will you be safe, safer or safest? Preaching Jesus as hero or messenger hero or the malleable Take it or leave it, Jesus. Cut and paste, Jesus. Making an unsafe confession is the only confession that can make someone safe for eternity. Making unsafe confessions might feel unsafe, but when you're doing God's will, you're in the safest place that you possibly could be. So speak what you believe.